In 1 Peter, we have found ourselves acknowledging and recognizing that the end of all things is at hand. You've already gone through the four activities that you should be engaged in. If that is a reality for our our philosophy of life, that we understand the brevity not only of human life in terms of being 70, 80 years at its maximum, 90, maybe 100, um, not only that brevity, but the brevity of this age, of the church age itself, this day of salvation. The Bible rightly calls it a day. Uh, while that day has stretched into uh, nearly a couple of millennia, we recognize its brevity, that there will be an end to all things. And the Bible is consistently clear about this from the very beginning. The prophets write of it, that the disciples and the church understood that and lived accordingly. That we have an expectation beyond this lifespan, beyond this place, beyond this age. And so when Peter writes, the end of all things is at hand, we take that at face value, recognize that this is the, the, the day of salvation. This is the opportunity we have to confront the gospel confront people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've seen the necessity that if we are going to stand, we are going to stand together as a people of God. The idea of one against the the storm is not a biblical concept, although some will strive to do that and may even be somewhat successful. How much better it would be to be a part of a body of Christ standing together. And so, be serious and watchful in your prayers, plural. The your there is plural. Your prayers. You as a people. Have fervent love for one another, which necessitates being in a community. We cover a multitude of each other's sins. We are hospitals, again, in a community to one another. We do it gladly, without really keeping record, as 1 Corinthians 13 says. And then we minister one to another again, the necessity of community, that this is our stewardship. And that as we are good stewards, we are preparing for the day of accounting. Because every steward knows that there's a day when you have to give an account to the owner of what you are managing to demonstrate how well you did with what he entrusted to your care. Whether that be... uh, Material things, whether it be relationships, children, uh, and spiritual gifts. We have an accounting we must give to God. So that is coming with the end of all things. And we're going to be picking up some of that concept of that accounting as we come into the next passage. We looked again last week, just last week, that at the end of all things, if that's the case, then our expectation of opposition, of persecution, of suffering, should also scale up as we draw nearer. And we saw the breadth of that, whether it is by violent means that we often associate with persecution, of removal of privileges, of of even necessities of life, and even life itself. 
We also saw the Bible points to another kind of persecution, a very gradual, very cunning, subtle persecution that simply saps you of your spiritual vitality and saps the church of her capacity to stand. In our weakened state, the church is really unable to stand. They are just cardboard cutouts of what God intended them to be in terms of the warfare, the spiritual warfare that is around and about us. And so we need to step away, and as we looked last week, and, and investigate church history and decide, well, what was Christianity like 100 years ago, 200 years ago? What was the expectations? What was, what was righteousness defined as? Not by the world, but by the Christian community, and even the world's perspective on how Christians ought to live. Even 50 years ago, as a young man, my peers would have an expectation that if you're a Christian, you're going to live at a different standard than others. And we are largely losing that. And that loss is not the fault of the world, it is the fault of the church, who has simply communicated to the world that, oh, don't hold us to that, don't hold us to that, don't hold us to that. We want to be like you, be accepted by you, look like you, talk like you, do what you do, listen to what you listen to, watch what you watch. And so we have both of those going on in the world. And while we live largely in the second, it is foolish to think that the first kind of persecution is uh, not on the near horizon as we come to the end of all things. Each week, except for the one or two I forgot, I've been trying to share with you some evidences around of, of the end of all things, is how near at hand it really is. And I found myself with so much information that I don't even know where to start. And, and even last night I'm watching and seeing what's going on in Australia with their concentration camps and, and putting well people into them without any judicial activity, without anything, uh, without any observance of individual rights zero they are simply taken off and if you you're and it's punitive it's not for safety it's really for punitive reasons uh, putting people into concentration camps and they're building these all over Australia as quickly as they can uh, this is reality going on right now uh, this is not conspiracy stuff. This is what is going on. They are interviewing people. And while the internment right now might only be for a couple of weeks at a time, the threat is even there that it can be extended at the will of the oligarchs. And so we come to uh, realize that these privileges that we have are on a, on a very, on a thread. They're being held on a thread and so we should recognize that the end of all things is at hand. But I just want to share one element, <laughs> literally, <laughs> one element of the end times, of, why, of how near it is. And the Bible talks about knowledge increasing, uh, yet the love of many will grow cold. Uh, and that's not just in, in terms of, of knowledge uh, base, but in the uh, manipulation of our, our created order of the a world around us, and uh, one of the things that everyone has been asking, well, how can we do this, how can we do that, and of course, over my entire lifespan, we've seen uh, 
guesses, and we're going to persist in that because we want the Lord to come back just like they did. And so certainly when the arrival of, of computer chip technology and subdermal chip implants started, and it's, all of your animals, if you are registered here in the city, have them, right? Your, your animals are all chipped. Uh, and we say, well, that, that's going to be the precursor of the frightening mark of the beast. And a lot of speculation and talk about that. And certainly uh, that was uh, um, possible, but, it, uh, and, but really a chip is just a chip. It's just a storage device. But that's not really what is entailed in what the Bible describes. Um, but now we have something on another whole order. We have a great access because of we have Intel here in Rio Rancho, and and uh, hopefully with some of the labs, national labs, we have some of this. But we have now come to making a processor on something that is not a, a storage device, but a processor. The technology is there now. Um, just on a little piece of film because of something called graphene. What is graphene? Well, you know what graphite is because you had graphite pencils growing up, right? And what is graphite? It's just pure carbon. Uh, graphene, though, is pure carbon as well, but instead of being a dense thing, it's a, it's, it is one single layer. It is a single carbon atom thick. Now you think about that. And it has metallic qualities that can be done. And so one of the applications of that is they're talking about microprocessors that are so thin, so small, that they simply can be put on the skin. And one of the tech sites that I watch a lot of because he's not a believer, he doesn't have any concept, but he's always excited about tech coming out and he evaluates it and explains it. And one of the examples of the application of this showed a microprocessor being placed on somebody's right there. And, and now you can do all the activity that you do on your phone on a little film that you can just apply and take off. And it's kind of exciting. The end of all things is at hand. The technology is well in place, not only to just store data in you, but to process it as well. And certainly we are anticipating that that is uh, the end game, if you will, uh, of what we see going on around us. And yes, if you've been paying attention, graphene is something that they are saying is in at least two of the um, vaccines. They're putting graphene in it. So that single layer, and that's been well documented as one of the elements. It is a single element, perfect carbon. And I know others have made a big deal out of the fact that carbon has six neutrons, six protons, six electrons, and all of that. Um, we don't need to go into all of that. But it is the concept that we are there. We are on the cusp. We have the concepts here and the technology in place that one generation ago we could only speculate at. And now we are showing it on videos explaining how to use it and just waiting for the opportunity to use it. Uh, not really saying that um, 
not, not science fiction at all. So the end of all things is at hand. So we should anticipate that these things are going to become more and more essential for us to be involved in these four elements, and we should be uh, understanding that persecution is going to be the normal for the people of faith. That if you are walking with the Lord, you're serving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The world is going to hate you. It's going to express itself against that, and that you'll be the target. You'll become public enemy number one. And so we are called upon to don't think it's strange. Think it's normal in verse 12. Please understand fiery trial, which is to try you in the future, is normal. It is not a strange thing. We talked about that last week. Now we want to get into <laughs> the, the major thing. I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to pull back a little bit. And when I give Mr. McKillop my, uh, my sermon notes, um, he has a lot of question marks, and I said, this might be reversed. So he has no idea where I'm going this week, next week, and probably not the next week after that. Um, because frankly, at the time, I didn't really know how I wanted to organize this. And so we're going we're gonna to start off by giving the major theme. And you can't miss the major theme of this passage because it's repeated over and over and over again throughout this section of Scripture. And it really goes back to verse 11, and, and we're going to pick up there in verse 11 at the, the final phrases, and it's picked up all the way through the end of this chapter. So we're going to read this passage together, and you will, I think, very quickly understand what the major focus and purpose of standing fast in the, at, during the end days is all about. And so let's pick this up uh, with a, in the middle of a sentence. That's really odd for me in verse 11. It says the word that. That in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of Christ. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. The overwhelming objective of, of engaging in the activities that we looked at uh, weeks ago, those four activities, uh, because the end of all things is at hand, the underlying purpose of, of being prepared to understand the normalcy of having to endure fiery trials, reproaches, and suffering is not just that we survive. That is not the goal. The objective is not to survive. It is not to uh, last and to be here. And, and, and I'm, I'm going to take a step further. It's not really even to try to get to be alive when Jesus comes back, to participate in the rapture. Because you're going to participate in the rapture whether you're, you're asleep in the ground or whether you're alive. You're going to participate in the rapture. That's the whole point of Thessalonians. 
And so that's really not the goal either. And that's what we need to understand. The goal is not to uh, keep Christianity alive. That's not really your job. Uh, that's God's job. And, and he says that the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Uh, that Jesus is the rock. He is the establishment of that. And he is the, the power and the, the foundation of the church. And so we're not really here to keep Christianity alive, to keep a way of life alive. That is, none of that is the objective of standing fast in our faith in the end times. The singular purpose for this is listed over and over and over again, and it is that single word of glory. You're bringing glory to God. That is our objective, which is really the objective of man all the way back to when we were first created in a sinless state, was to bring God's, to God, glory. To magnify his name, that our purpose in enduring uh, fiery trial, to endure uh, suffering, reproaches, <coughs> to participate in these serious, meaningful prayers, to be ministering one to another uh, in, in terms of covering sin and being hospitals to each other and serving our gifts to one another as good stewards, is all to bring glory to God. Our survival is not fundamentally what we are trying to accomplish. We are trying for God to be glorified in all of this. Whether I live or die is irrelevant. And that's why Paul can say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Living or dying isn't relevant. The relevant point is, is God glorified? And if God can be glorified by me standing fast in front of a violent persecutor and shedding my blood, shedding my life, and that's what it means to participate in the sufferings of Christ. Okay, we're not talking about being a little hungry, being a little cold, none of that. We're talking about shedding blood to the point of death. A violent death. That if it comes to that, that is God glorified in this? And so I'm going to uh, carry myself in such a way that God is glorified, even as I am confronted with this maltreatment by the world, uh, even to the point of death, whatever they're going to take away from me, I'm not going to complain, I'm not going to fight, I'm not going to do all these things like the world would do because this world is not my home. I am not clinging to these things as though they are the meaning of my life. Because they aren't. If they were, I would be a pathetic person and people who are clinging to those things are pathetic. You have, should have pity for them. Because they have nothing better to cling to and to live for. We are of a different ilk. We have a, we, we have a wonderful purpose and, and definition of who we are rather than what we possess and, and, and where, we, where our standing is in the world. If that's all you have, I feel sorry for you. For the follower of Jesus Christ, we have so much more. And so all of this is to bring glory to God. So that is the umbrella. It is the umbrella really over the four activities you should be into. It is the umbrella over the expectation of suffering that we talked about last week. And it's the umbrella over uh, the rest of what we have to talk about this week and next and probably one more. Uh, but it is the overwhelming aspect is, are we glorifying God? Is God 
name being praised as we live out our Christian life, and particularly in reference to suffering. And of course, we keep going back to Job, we keep going back to the sufferings of Paul in his missionary journeys as he recounts them in his writings. We keep going back to different uh, examples of suffering. All the prophets, pretty much, you could go through all of them. In fact, that's one of the statements, is which of the prophets haven't your fathers persecuted? Right? Tell me. You know, because you hated them all. So they all endured that. What does it mean to bring glory to God? Well, sometimes it's not even within the purview of your understanding. Job didn't understand how God was being glorified by his suffering. And yet it was tremendous. It was the conversation that persisted in heaven that showed Satan that mankind would choose God no matter what. Job's endurance of suffering brought glory to God, maybe not in his immediate surroundings for quite a while. It wasn't until God showed up and and straightened it all out. But for quite a while there, there was no understanding of it. But while that was going on, Satan was silenced in heaven and God was glorified because Job did not sin in all that he suffered. Wow. Wouldn't you love to have an opportunity to be that? Well, no, not if it costs me that. Exactly. Are you really committed to God being glorified in your life no matter the price? And that's what this is really encompassing. And so that is the umbrella over all of this. Now, we're going to look at at some related elements here. There's really uh, two attitudes that we want to pick up on here that are related to two realities of what's going to happen in the future. And we're not just talking about believers and unbelievers, and that's going to be really evident. Uh, We're going to talk about the negative one first, because I want to do the positive one later. (laughs) I want to end on the positive part. Uh, So we're going to talk about uh, the one element of attitude that really should reflect itself in your life. If we're going to bring glory to God, we should have, as followers of Jesus Christ, a full understanding that that can only happen if we walk in righteousness and truth. Okay, We must walk in righteousness if we expect God to be glorified in anything that we're doing. That means that we are going to have to approach the world, we're going to have to live out our days walking circumspectly is the old term. We're going to walk according to the scriptures, what God demands of us, which is a higher standard than the law. Uh, Most people use the word circumspectly is according to the law. And I feel, again, a little pity for those that have, have defined the Christian life by the law. Because Christ makes it very clear that the law is inadequate. The law is really just a starting point to point out people's sin. It's not the end point of what it means to be righteous. Because if righteousness could come by keeping the law, you remember that argument anywhere in the Bible? Paul uses it in Romans, author of Hebrews uses it. So we have it repeated for us again and again in Scripture that the, keeping the law is not equated with what God's righteous demands are. They really there, the law is our schoolmaster, says, to teach us about our sinfulness. Because we don't measure up. 
even to this standard. That is not the standard. It is a standard to demonstrate man's sin. And so Jesus Christ calls us to a different standard, a standard of righteousness that says, I'm going to, Jesus Christ raises the bar, and I have to raise the bar with him because that's now the new standard. The standard, and we're going to talk about some of these things here. Peter's going to list them for us. And, and we recognize, well, those things are sin, and, and we shouldn't be involved in that. That's pretty obvious. That's a breaking of the law. But we're going to see that in Peter's mind, that standard is really much higher than what you think of. And so the one that he starts off with here uh, in verse 16, I'm sorry, verse uh, 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer. Well, we understand that, I don't know how many of you are murderers. Let that sink in for a little bit. From a Christ perspective, it says, well, thou shalt not murder. Christ says, well, if you hate your brother, you are guilty of that. That that desire is what God is pointing to. And so we are called to love one another. If we have so much uh, hatred that we want someone dead, and that is our longing for them, whether we perpetrate the act against them or not, isn't relevant to the righteousness that is superior to the law. It is the righteousness that you and I are called to. And so we can join someone like Stephen, even in the midst of being killed by his very uh, active, violent crowd, um, seeing heaven and being able to see the glory of God, uh, can cry out with his last breath, do not hold this against them. That the very people killing him, he is praying for them as his last declaration. He is praying for them as he's dying. So when we begin to understand that nature, that I have no basis for that kind of wanting anyone dead, God doesn't. His righteousness does not desire any should die, but all should come to repentance. God does not have joy over the death of even the evil ones, uh, of the wicked. And so how can he enjoy any of that? Any death. And so we have that standard. And then, of course, we can look at and then the next one on the list is a thief. That, that don't suffer as a thief. And so, if you're, if, by the way, if you're going to get just to these four, you're going to be really disappointed when we get the last one. So you're not going to suffer as a thief. And we recognize that coveting is, is there in the law. That you shouldn't covet your neighbor's this, your neighbor's that, your neighbor's the other thing. Uh, that once you don't covet, you, you're not going to steal. But we have to give you a don't steal. Um, but we are called to something very different. We are called... Remember, um, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. If someone needs something uh, you have, that you not only give them what they ask for, you're going to give them more than what they ask for, even if it's a knife point or gun point. That we are going to uh, heap coals of fire upon their head, that doesn't mean that we're going to burn them to death. It's really meaning that if they ask you for a lump of coal to start a fire, that you're going to give them a whole bunch to start a really good fire, not just barely enough. We're just going to meet it out. We want to be fully generous with them and meet more than what they ask or expect from us. And so we are called to this generous hospitality that says, all that I have is open and available to meet your needs.
I know it kind of flies in the face of capitalism. I'll just end that there. And this is an evildoer. And again, we are seeking to do righteousness. We are the opposite of that. And it's not just I'm, I'm trying to keep the law. It is I am trying to do what is right. We are in the process of writing and, and giving some biblical background for a bioethic. And that is what is God's best? What is his expectation of, a, of, a, of the best reaction, response, and engagement with the world in the decisions of life? That we are seeking out the very best, the highest righteousness that we can attain to. And again, we can look at, well, does God require that? Well, he, he permits, certainly. He allows the people of God to not attain to his ethic of what is right. But I want you to remind you why he allows for that. He allows for that not because it is unattainable, he allows for that because, quote, the hardness of your heart. This is why Moses and the law permitted divorce, because of the hardness of Israel's heart. Not because it was pleasing to God. God clearly says he hates divorce, but he says, I'll permit that, uh, but there's a better standard, and Christ presents that standard. And that's what we strive after. And while we do not attain to that, in evaluating it, we just say, well, I'm just a, a, I'm not a perfect person, and we excuse ourselves rather than uh, a being sorrowful over a hardened heart that says, I don't want to strive after righteousness on God's ethic. And so when it says an evildoer, this is a very broad category. Well, so far you might say, well, I'm not a murderer, I'm not a thief, I'm not an evildoer, I'm a nice guy, I do nice stuff, I treat people nicely. But we, then we go to the number four, and it's like, what in the world is that doing there? How does that rate right up there with stealing and murdering and doing evil? Don't meddle is really the word, don't, don't, don't uh, be a busybody in other people's matters. This could go right along with some other passages that include concepts of like gossip, tattletaling, things like that, that we are not to be engaged in. And so you go, well, you go from murder, and then in the same sense, on this, on this very important list of evil that we, are, we should suffer for is being meddler in other people's affairs. Yes, from a biblical perspective, you should be suffering for doing that. And God should say, don't, yes, not bring me glory, you suffer for that. You deserve to suffer for that. You should suffer if you're a murderer. You should be punished if you're a thief. You should be punished by the government if uh, you're an evildoer. You should be punished by the government if you are meddling in other people's affairs. I don't know what your legal liability is. Uh, you have to ask Mrs. Roberts, the younger um, over that. There's probably some laws about meddling in other people's affairs. Uh, that's what the HIPAA laws, I think, were all about. Don't meddle in their medical affairs, but their financial affairs. You just go whatever. It should be against the law. You should be punished. You should go to jail for that. Or at least cut off a finger or two. 
You know, somewhere along the line, you should have some punishment, and the Bible is good with that. Oh, but we have that going on in churches. We have a standard here of righteousness that we are going to be held accountable for. Well, why is that an attitude and a, and a standard we should be holding in the end days? Well, because one part of the, if the end of all things is at hand, that means the day of accounting is also at hand. Verse 17 says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And I find that very few Christians take this seriously. To understand this concept that Peter is trying to communicate to you. Remember, now, when he says, for the time has come, for this is the time. The end of all things is at hand. Now the time of judgment is at hand. Now, when we think of that, we often think, well, that's the seven years, the outpouring of God's wrath, and that's on the world, and the church is going to be raptured out of there uh, right before all of the outpouring of his wrath. We're not talking about his wrath. We're talking about his judgment, and he's not talking about it on the world. He's talking about on his church. And so he says, when this time, this time of the end of all things being at hand, is a time when we understand that judgment is going to begin, and the beginning of judgment isn't on the world. The beginning of God's judgment is on his church. It begins here in the house of God, and it is not a light one. We often hear people talking about the judgment seat of Christ as though it's kind of just an awards banquet. Come on, that's how we usually think of it, right? It's just an award ceremony. We get to walk up there and oh, I get my crowns and, and, and that's what the judgment seat of Christ is out. And we minimize the idea of judgment of God over his people. We forget that the Bible says that many of your works will burn up as wood, hay, and stubble. I don't know about you, but when I think of all my activity of life, and I say, well, God's going to judge that, and he's going to say, well, that's worthless, burn it, that's, and, and this is, the judgment of God is, is a big old bonfire, and it's not a happy one. Maybe that's why one of the first activities when we enter into the other side of that is Christ has to wipe away your tears, because you're weeping over how little we did for Christ that really mattered. Because we pursued this world with such gusto and all that it was and such purposefulness that we forgot to pursue anything of eternal value. Gold, silver, and precious stone in terms of durability. Where is the durable goods that will endure the judgment of God? And he reiterates this by quoting for us in verse 18. If the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? And we'll get to the latter half of that proverb 
but it's the first part of that proverb that we really want to address today in our attitude of understanding why am I going to pursue righteousness? I pursue righteousness because not only am I going to give an accounting as a good steward of the gifts of God, I am also going to stand before God as my judge to evaluate my life ethic. How did I live? Did I live in surrender and obedience to God's word and to God's best? Or did I seek to simply avoid it and, and try to do an end around them in my quote-unquote Christian living? What am I pursuing in life? What is the... When, when we drop down all of the equations, what really is driving your decision-making? If the righteous one is scarcely saved... And this is, I, I wish I could preach both these sermons at the same time. Because uh, you're going to walk out here and say, boy, pastor's really down on us. There's the other half of this sermon we're going to next week. It's really one sermon, because it's one passage here. They're interwoven so tightly that I'm, I'm doing a disservice to the text, tearing it apart like this, really. So we have here an attitude, a recognition that God is going to be our judge. It is a judgment seat of Christ. It is not just about handing out awards. It is not an award ceremony. It is an evaluation of the Christian's life. And it is right for us to consider carefully how our lives will be judged by God, not by me, not by your conscience, not by the law, by God. And the Bible says the righteous people, the righteous ones are scarcely saved. They are barely make it in. And those are the really, really righteous people. They're scarcely saved. It kind of makes you start to go, huh. And it should. But we have extracted that concept and we and we think that we can just tool along. I prayed this sinner's prayer. I got dunked in this tank over here, and now I can just waltz into heaven. Probably like a peacock with all my crowns displayed. No! And we are sure that everyone that dies and did not uh, deny Christ somewhere in the last days is going to be greeted by the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. We're sure that that's going to be like said a trillion times of everybody that walks into heaven. I don't think we understand the rarity that that phrase will be used in our heavenly arrival judgment. Have we really done it well? Are we good? Are we faithful? Are these terms we consistently can apply. And so there's a, a certain element of recognition that the, if the end of all things is at hand, then the judgment of God is also at hand, and that day of accounting is coming. What I must give accounting for my, his gifts, 
What kind of a manager have I been of all those things he's entrusted to me, but also I'm going to be judged in terms of righteousness. And yes, I understand theologically that we're going to be pointing to Christ and say, Christ is my atonement. I walk in the righteousness of Christ. I do not deny that in any way, shape, or form. It is your only hope. But as Peter associate, talks about your suffering, to associate with Christ's suffering, why did Christ suffer? He suffered for righteousness' sake. And this is the whole aspect of how do I bring glory to God? I have to walk in righteousness. I have to suffer. Am I suffering for I'm not suffering as an evildoer. I'm not suffering as a busybody. I'm not suffering for any of this stuff. I am suffering for Christ, and that will bring him glory. And my expectation is that necessitates righteousness. On a scale that most of us, frankly, are uncomfortable with. Because we have rights. We're more concerned about our rights than our righteousness. I have a right not to be judged. I have a right to interpret these things the way I choose to based upon my culture. I have a right to, I have a right, and we, we are so concerned about our rights instead of righteousness. And saying, well, that's, this is what is best, and, and I haven't measured up to that. And having sorrow in our hearts at least to repentance and say, I'm sorry I haven't measured up to that, and I want to do things differently in my life. I want to adjust my whole philosophy of what is righteous to conform to what God says is righteous, how Jesus' righteousness is, is laid before us. We're not talking about pharisaical righteousness. We're not talking ritual righteousness. We're talking about the real deal that Jesus condemned the Pharisees for. Oh, you're sitting there doing this little tithing of your little spices and, you know, not a milligram too much, you know, just right to the tenth. You're, you're, you're worried about that kind of righteousness. That is not what we're talking about. Christ condemned that. And so as we associate with Christ's sufferings, Peter makes it very clear that if that's going to bring glory to God in your sufferings, it better be for doing things righteously. Now, I have a dilemma I was confronted with yesterday afternoon. Actually, it was still morning, I think. It was still morning when I was confronted with this dilemma. We were up at the Bahamas. We were putting on the roof, and I had a week and a half ago take, no, last, when did we take that up there? Was that last week? Just last, Tuesday. Okay, so Tuesday, I bought all the steel on Monday, and I loaded it up on the trailer. I take it up there. We're doing the roof. We're real excited, and we finished it yesterday. So there's a roof on that. Is a roof on the building. Woo. Okay, but I have a dilemma. The dilemma is I bought 32 sheets of steel for the roof, and there were 33 in the pile. Someone made a mistake. And they gave me one too many. So now I have a problem, don't I? Because I'm going to be going back there probably tomorrow or sometime this week to buy the things I need to finish the walls. What should I do? 
It was their mistake, not mine. No, the righteousness of Christ tells me exactly what to do. It really isn't a dilemma. It's immediate. Well, I have to go and tell them, oh, you gave me 14 feet too much of steel and I need to add it to my bill. I'm using it, so I didn't bring it back. We already drilled holes in it, cut it up into pieces. So, you see, it's no dilemma for me. Is it a dilemma for you? You see, our righteousness has to be higher than the world's expectations. You pray for me because when I go in there and they say, oh, well, that's really honest of you to do that. And I'll say, no, it's not. It's just because Christ made a difference in my life and now these things aren't a problem. I'm going to do what's right. Even if it's to my supposed injury, it's really not. It would be to their injury if I didn't do what was right. And so we have this righteous demand. Because I have an accounting, not to Metal Mart, not even to my own conscience. I have an accounting to God that I must consider. The end of all things is at hand. And one of the wonderful little things that should percolate in the back of your mind as you make decisions of life throughout the day, is what happens if God comes back right now? Would he be pleased with what I'm doing? What if I was raptured now? We all really want to be raptured on Sunday morning, right? Preferably between like 10, <laughs> 10 to 11. Oh, I was doing something great for God, and uh, that's when I want the rapture to happen. But keep that perk in mind, because the end of all things is at hand. What do you want to be found doing when Christ returns? It puts it all into quick perspective because when Christ returns, we, we get excited about, you know, going into the air and meeting him in the clouds and all that, but we forget that that is the beginning of a judgment. The judgment of the church comes first. And even the rapture itself becomes a kind of judgment, doesn't it? Who of the church is really the church? Right? When I grew up in the 70s, a big movie series called Left Behind. I know that there was books later, but the, I don't know. I never read any of those books, the Left Behind series. But there were some movies um, that came out in the 70s, and they were really impactful in my generation uh, of thinking. They weren't necessarily accurate but the whole idea of being left behind and the idea was these people were left behind. They had to navigate through the seven years of, of God's wrath and, and then you had some preachers that had to navigate through the seven years because they didn't preach the truth. Uh, and so then they were trying to preach the truth during the seven years and, and all of this and, and the avoidance and all of that. And it was a lot of interesting concepts. But the principle there is lost that if you're not part of the, that rapture event, you're not part of the church. This is the day of salvation. So the rapture itself is a judgment. The righteous are scarcely saved. 
barely. We get to heaven and then we face the judgment seat of Christ and now all our works are just, and there's a, they're going to be tested by fire. And, and, and it's kind of interesting that Peter uses a fiery trial today that don't be alarmed at a fiery trial because it might be a prejudgment for us to kind of purify us so that we can get to heaven and we've already in our mind already resolved the fact that none of that stuff was of any value anyway, and I was willing to have it burned away from me that I, by the world, by Satan, so that I could be purified in my approach to what really lasts in my life. What kind of things are you pursuing that will really last, that will survive the trials of this world and survive that flame, that holy flame of God at the judgment seat of Christ that will be applied to your life's choices. You see, you never really thought about that. Most people don't want to anymore. The church doesn't teach it much anymore. That there is an application of the flame of God's justice and holiness applied to your activities, and then what survives, then we get to the award ceremony. <laughs> then we can talk about that. But I want you to understand that judgment, from its inception to its conclusion, brings glory to God. I prefer that I bring glory to God through righteous acts that, of, that please God, rather than being scarce, having the smell of smoke upon me, that I just barely got there, and that I'm now there empty-handed, serving God empty-handed for the balance of my existence because I pursued the world instead of Christ during these few days that we have here. The end of all things is at hand. In righteousness, because we recognize that that means judgment, righteousness is suddenly of immediate and intense value. Because only it will survive the judgment of God. And so that judgment moves us to walk in righteousness, to walk in truth. But it also moves us in another area. And that is to recognize the despair of those without Christ. When we look at suffering and those that perpetrate that suffering against us, whether the subtle kind that diminish us and weaken us and sap us of our spiritual vitality, whether it be the violent kind that is much more easy to point to and be disgusted by or impressed by for those that stand up against it and through it, we need to remember that those that are the perpetrators are in grave danger. 
They are in true despair. And they are living out a philosophy of life that is consistent with their condition. Can I say that? It is consistent with what their relationship with God is. That without a relationship with God, they should perpetrate all the things that Peter says you shouldn't. They should be perpetrating those. They should be murdering, stealing, doing all sorts of evil things. And that's probably more focused on moral stuff. And even meddling in your affairs where they have no business. Things they should suffer and governments should take care of and society should frown upon those things. And yet they're going to engage in those and they are in grave danger. They are living out the reality of their condition and their condition is a place of despair because they have a judgment coming that they have no possibility of being saved. We are scarcely saved. The proverb asks the question, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Where are they going to be? What's going to be their condition? And that should be a concern to us, that we should be looking at them and, and realizing that they are in a condition of despair, of hopelessness, that's what despair is, that, that because they have no relationship with God, or even worse, they have an imagined relationship with God based upon men's religions that have pointed them in the wrong direction and have completely fooled them. And so they cling to religious ritual and have no reality in their life of God in them. And so they are living out their condition. And it is silly for us to think that they should live some other way. And this goes back from in our history, in, our, in Christianity, in modern Christianity, to what was called the moral majority movement. It says, well, we're, we're, the majority of Americans are very moral people, and we need to have laws that reflect that. And on, 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 and, and it's nauseating. If you think the, mor the, the morals of the majority of people in this country are good, then you don't understand a biblical concept of sin. Your, your measure of righteousness is pathetic. Men are evil, and they are evildoers all the day long. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Jeremiah says. And somehow we think that we can legislate away their sin and it is not something that can be done. It's not even something that Christians should pursue to be done. Lest people think that by keeping the law and not doing these really bad things, I haven't killed it. I had people, you know, you're a sinner. Well, I haven't killed anybody. I, I'm good to my family, blah, 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 blah. And they think they're good people. And I'm like, you're going to hell. For what? Because you don't meet God's standard. Well, that's his problem. No, it's yours. But you see, our world has convinced itself that they aren't sinners because God's righteousness is no longer the standard and it's not even the standard in our churches anymore. 
we stopped making this the standard of righteousness a long time ago. And so the world, how can they? They can't see. There's no light. We've dimmed our lanterns, so they're barely visible. Do we have an understanding that the world is lost and that they have a judgment coming? That if they do not obey the gospel of God, if we are barely saved, scarcely saved, scarce is a better word than barely, because scarcity means few. Which goes along with what Christ said. What did he say? Something about a narrow road? Few there be that find it? But if you listen to modern preachers, it's a pretty broad road. Just believe in God. That's all you need. Believe in God. They even say it that way. God. G-A-W-D. No. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Few there be that find it. It's scarce. So we recognize the necessity of pointing people to their sin, which is really hard if we're engaged in it ourselves. It's called hypocrisy. And so I want to suffer in front of the world for doing the right thing. Because I want them to know this is right and it should be stood for and what you're doing is wrong so that you know you are an evildoer and maybe, just maybe, you'll start to think, oh, I'm a sinner and I'm in trouble. And that's why Peter says, if you're going to suffer, make sure you suffer for righteousness' sake, suffer for Christ's sake, don't suffer as an evildoer because... That's consistent with what they're seeing everywhere else. But when we stand on righteousness and it is costly to us and they're recognizing that they are the ones that are perpetrating that cost upon us for doing the right thing, then they will have the guilt. And guilt is such a good thing. I know that you don't hear that very much. I'm telling you, guilt is a really good thing. It's your conscience telling you something's wrong. Pain is a really good thing. It tells you something's wrong. Without it, you put your hand on the stove and you scorch your hand till it's gone without pain. Pain tells you to take your hand off. It's a good thing. Take corrective action. I want guilt upon them. I don't want them to walk through their life Sensing guiltlessness. And so we stand for a righteousness that is above the law and we walk in it no matter what. We know that we have a judgment coming and so I'm a little afraid of that judgment and so I'm going to strive even harder after righteousness because I want to stand before God. Cloaked certainly in the righteousness of Jesus Christ but with a offering of thanksgiving to him of a walk that showed that I loved him and wanted to glorify his name. Remember, that's the big umbrella. You see, at the judgment, it's not about bringing glory to me or to you. It's about bringing glory to Christ. So at Metal Mart, it's not about them saying, you're a nice guy, you're an honest person for doing this, and if that's where it ends, then I've failed. 
fail miserably. He needs to end by saying, no, Christ has made a difference in me. And without him, I probably would have not said a word to you and just kept that 14 feet of steel as, as <laughs> gotcha, big guy. I got the guy. I stuck it to the man. No. The glory must go to Christ and Christ alone. That is the umbrella over all of this here. That as the end of all things is at hand, Christ will be glorified. I would prefer him to be glorified by being, being a good steward rather than by the fire of his judgment. I would prefer to be glorifying him through righteousness rather than through uh, worldliness. You can't glorify him that way. I want to glorify him by being a testimony to his truth to the world no matter what for their good even though it might not be really good for me on the short term and the long term it is. And we're going to look at that next week. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for so great a salvation. Lord, we can say thanks with our lips. Help us to do so with our lives in the coming week. To walk more like your son this week than last. Forgive us where we have failed and keep failing many times. Lord, help us to be bold in doing what is right. Though there are consequences here, we know that there's a reward waiting for us that righteousness will endure. Lord, we see the end of all things. We know judgment comes with the end. And we pray that we might be found in your presence, bearing works of gold, frankincense, and precious jewels rather than wood, hay, and stuff. Will help us, give us wisdom to choose those over anything this world has to offer. In Christ Jesus' name we pray.